This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary in Dallas, Texas. And our topic today is, uh, is Hispanics in the Church. And I have three uh, distinguished guests with me today, Yvonne Leon, uh, Miguel Lopez, and Michael Ortiz. And I'm going to let them each introduce themselves and their ministries. And I'm going to start here with Yvonne. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you do. And, uh, and where you live and, and uh, your association with Hispanic ministry. Well, Dr. Buck, it's a pleasure to be here. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, I'm glad to talk to your audience. I am Ivan Leon, as you said. I was born originally in Argentina, mm-hmm. came here to the U.S. 20 years ago. My passion always been to uh, utilize media, this form of communication, in fact, uh, to reach Latinos. Mm-hmm. And uh, I came to the U.S. precisely to get training in that. I got a bachelor's at Dallas uh, um, Liberty University, uh-huh. and that's the technical side of my training. And then I was fortunate to come to here, DTS, and get my theological training. Mm-hmm. And so those two areas complement, and I now lead a marketing agent, uh, agency that is dedicated to, uh, to help ministries, churches, publishers really engage the untapped Hispanic population in the U.S. Okay. Thanks, Juan. And Miguel? Thank you, Dr. Bach. I'm mm-hmm. so excited to be here today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm one of the pastors at the Heights Baptist Church, teaching pastor for the church and also uh, responsible for our Hispanic ministry. And that's here. Is it in Dallas or in the suburb of Dallas? Yes, it is in Richardson, okay. a suburb of Dallas. Uh-huh. And, uh, our ministry approach is an integrated ministry, which basically means that we're not a church inside of a church. We mm-hmm. are a, a ministry that seeks to create a cultural bridge between the Hispanic community and the vibrant uh, life of the local church. So everybody that's part of this Hispanic ministry are members of the Heights, and they get to participate in every ministry and also join the mission of the church. Okay. And Michael? Uh, Dr. Bach, thank you again for having us uh, at this table podcast. Uh, it's an honor to be here with you. My name is Michael Ortiz, and I'm currently working at Dallas Theological Seminary. I have a faculty administrative role. My faculty role is working in the uh, teaching in the World Missions and Cultural Studies Department, but I'm also working as uh, director of what now is DTS in Espanol, which I'm sure we'll hear more about that. But but in essence, it's a it's part of a new department or a new department here at DTS intending to try to uh, reach out to the Hispanic culture and be, have programs and courses and other uh, initiatives that will uh, hopefully bridge that gap between theological education and the local Hispanic church. Okay. Now, I've heard two terms that I uh, that I uh, kind of want to unpack before we even get started to show you how basic um, this conversation is, and that is you hear the word Hispanic and it sounds like it's all one thing. Okay, or you hear the word Latino and it sounds like it's all one thing. Okay, but I have someone from Argentina here, right? Mm-hmm. And Miguel, where where where's your where are your family roots from originally? From Mexico. Originally. From Mexico. Mm-hmm. And Michael, where are your family roots originally? 
From Cuba. From Cuba. Okay. So that already introduces the point of the question. Yep. Uh, so let's talk about terminology here to just to start off and just to throw everybody off at the start. <laughs> you know, uh, um, uh, uh, let's talk about Hispanic and Latino. Um, how, do, how does the, and here's the question. Are those the better terms to use in describing the group? And then what do you need to be aware of if, as you describe uh, this group? And Miguel, I think I'm going to start with you. And sure. Okay. Well, the, the label, of course, is a label that's pretty much a label used in the United States. Okay. When you talk about Latinos or Hispanics, you're trying to address a very diverse people group that mm -hmm. uh, the term tries to describe uh, cultural realities, but mm -hmm. also uh, countries of uh, origin and precedence. Mm -hmm. So it is, uh, Hispanics are not a monolithic group. Mm -hmm. You have mm -hmm. nationalities like Cubans, uh, Mexicans, right? People from all over the world. Mm -hmm. So you can you can see that they are not monolithic in that sense, but also culturally. Mm -hmm. When you talk about Hispanics, you may be referring to somebody that's just a first generation immigrant mm -hmm. whose first la language is Spanish, but that learned English here or may not have learned English. And then you have uh, their children that grow up here, a second generation that whose uh, primary language is English, and then they still speak some Spanish. And then you will have some Hispanics that, if we're thinking more on a racial tone, are, all, all Hispanics are mestizos. They're, they're a mix, right, of European mm -hmm. cultures and then a native culture. So you, you have third-generation Hispanics that speak only English and maybe have a Spanish name or some cultural makeup, but they're not a lot... Um, anything uh, that, that their first-generation grandparents would be. So you have a very diverse group in culture or ethnicity or country of origin in, in that label. Mm -hmm. Finding the right label is difficult, but I think in general it encompasses all those cultures that have to do with that ancestry. Okay, Ivan, you have anything you want to add to that? And then I'm going to ask you about Brazilians in a second. So. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Obviously to the Argentinians. Uh, yeah, right, right, right. right. <laughs> well, no. Uh, you know, the diversity obviously is very clear as, uh, you know, uh, Miguel here described it. But one aspect that I'd always like to notice is that, you know, especially those that arrive here from those Latin countries, once they're here, really their nationality boundaries begin to kind of blur you know mm -hmm. I have more Mexican you know connections now or Colombian or Cuban than I ever had and mm -hmm. in my daily life I experienced those cultures as well and I'm basically a, a, a Hispanic like my fellow uh, uh, neighbor right mm -hmm. and so uh, except other than for every four years when the World Cup comes around, uh, <laughs> yeah, there are we, are, this. we are, <laughs> deep. you know, we, I think there is a sense also of, you know, uh, community uh -huh. because we're all here as you know, immigrants. Uh -huh. And even those that are already uh, born here, mm -hmm. but by the way, the majority of Hispanics in the U.S. are already yeah, born I'm gonna here. I'm going to come talk okay? about that in a minute. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but there are still, you know, family traditions, aspirations, uh, you know, attitudes that really tie to the heritage and make it rich. And so, uh, you know, they still feel that sense of pride in, in that identity. So my point is, it's diverse, but in that diversity, I think there's unity as well. Okay. And, and so what do you do with the Brazilians? <laughs> are, they in the, are, they, are they in the family or are they cousins? Or how do you think about, how do you think about Brazilians? It's an interesting question. <laughs> Why don't I let the Cuban answer? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, thank you, <laughs> Uh, so, so Michael, I mean, obviously, if you do DTS in Espanol, that's not Portuguese, but still. Uh, I, I, I raised the question to almost uh, illustrate the difficulty. 
Yeah, you know, I think the the, the term Latino, uh, as some would say, that Latino refers to anyone that is from the Latin American setting or or, or, or background. So you could almost take Latino, and in, and you could include the Brazilians in there if you wanted to, uh-huh. uh, if you look at it from that perspective. Um, and I it, the, and the term Hispanic may may then be a a broader term in the sense that it might cover. Uh, Spanish speakers that may not be from Latin America may not live, be living in in uh, in the United States, but in other parts of the world, including Spain and other other sections of the world. So, uh, I, I, the way I see it is, a Hispanic may, is probably a broader term, and maybe Latino is is one that has um, its roots has to do with a geographical uh, location. So, so then, what do we do with the Spaniards? <laughs> well, you know, that's that's. <laughs> I think it goes back to my my point. Uh-huh. Uh, they're brothers, uh-huh. you know. I mean, they are really uh, brothers, siblings. They're part of the family. Uh-huh. Uh, Spanish, Portuguese, is, you know, almost speaks uh, is similar in sounding, and we can understand. Uh, but I think again, you know, once they're here. Uh, other than in the World Cup, you know, we feel a lot of unity and affinity. We want to get together, you know, to socialize because basically we, we, we share a lot of those common traditions. Okay. Now, uh, the next question is, I, I think, an obvious one coming off of this, and that is there are cultural features and cultural affinities that exist uh, out of this out of this cultural context. Let's talk about some of the values that are that would be identified with being Hispanic or Latino that that um, that are a part of the of the world that many many Hispanics live in. And I don't know who to have begin here. Maybe uh, Yvonne, why don't you start us off on that one? What what values do you see as important to to Hispanics in general? And and again, it's a generalization, but I do think there are some characteristics that people recognize. Yeah, well, definitely. You know, when uh, I'm not going to speak more of, of those that come from other countries, mm-hmm. or they they have over the last you know two three decades. You know, they brought a lot of uh, energy mm-hmm. and dedication and entrepreneurship. I mean, uh, Hispanic entrepreneurial business are skyrocketing right now in this mm-hmm. economy. Uh, and so the reason is because, you know, they bring all the energy, mm-hmm. uh, the, the really uh, hard work ethic, mm-hmm. you know, infused into the society. I think it's the, the way to really um, get into this cultural and to move up the social ladder and so on. So I think uh, that aspect, you know, is very important. Another aspect is actually religion, mm-hmm. you know, and mainline denominations in the U.S. Mm-hmm. are surviving and are actually moving and growing uh, because of the influence of uh, ethnicities and mm-hmm. specifically uh, Hispanics. And so there's a big movement in that. A lot of them arrive with Catholic roots, uh, we mentioned before, mm-hmm. uh, but they're moving away from that tradition mm-hmm. uh, in search for a more uh, genuine mm-hmm. and fresh and actually, you know, uh, part of their acculturation to the society. So I think those two are really, really key. Okay. Um, uh, Miguel, you think of anything else that belongs in that mix? You know, I think it, it also um, – a, a strong sense of relationships. Mm-hmm. It's not so much 
the pragmatic task oriented mentality right it, it is it is very much a a relational social fabric that moves mm -hmm. the Hispanic community. Um, in Latin America, it's all about relationships, and, mm -hmm. and the probability of mañana is not that people don't care about tasks, it's right. that relationship takes priority over that. So family also, uh, your extended relationships matter a little bit more than mm -hmm. for the average uh, um, American family because uh, um, your geography, your job, and your occupations isn't very much in a, in a big degree determined by your proximity to your loved ones. So mm -hmm. family, familyism to an extent is a is a predominant value. And as Ivan said, I, I would second that. Spirituality is very important. Not necessarily just religion, but just the spirituality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hispanics have a sense of of destiny and the mm -hmm. supernatural mm -hmm. that sometimes is not satisfied by religion mm -hmm. and therefore gets people in in trouble with syncretism or mm -hmm. spirituality mm -hmm. that's not necessarily distinctively christian or mm -hmm. even in in the, in the ballpark well, that's an interesting observation i may come back to that uh michael you have anything you want to add to the mix i was i was thinking actually family was one of the things that was in my head as i was asking the mm -hmm. question because mm -hmm. i've seen hispanic family. one of my closest friends is half guatemalan and, and had a guatemalan mother and their family was always around them. When I was with them, I, was, I wasn't just with brothers and sisters. I was with cousins and mm -hmm. grandparents and that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I, obviously, yeah, family is very important in the Hispanic culture. Uh, I know that in Cuba, for instance, it's not uncommon. I'm talking about the Cuban setting, but even here in the United States, uh, I just met with um, uh, someone here in Florida a couple of days ago who, who they're from Cuba, but they lived in New Jersey for a long time. And I asked them what part of New Jersey, because I know that there's a section in, in Jersey where most of the Cubans would, would live and, and, and they seem to kind of come together and, and, and settle in a certain area. And then they make that sort of their home for, for a long time. The other comment I wanted to make concerning the family is that uh, what I also see that is uh, may maybe not unique necessarily, but it stands out a little bit more, I think, within the Hispanic family and the culture. And that is especially when you see the first generation Hispanics come to the U.S., the parents uh, really are here not so much for them, well, for themselves, of course, but also they they have children. They really want to see their children advance and mm -hmm. get education and have a better have a better life here. And I, I, you see that across the board. I think with most Hispanics, you'll have parents that are working several jobs just to have their children be able to have the right education, go to the right schools, and, and advance, uh, so that they have a, a better, more opportunities here than they would have had in their in their native country. Now let's let, let's talk about something that uh, I think Yvonne you raised, which is um, most of the Hispanics who are here are not are second or third generation. They're mm -hmm. not. They haven't they haven't immigrated here. Mm -hmm. um, uh, now I know you were ready with some statistics earlier, and no, I, I, but uh, <laughs> uh, but um, in general, what are we talking about? I mean, is this uh, two thirds, one third? You know, what what kind of a breakdown are we talking about here? About fifty five percent of the seventy of the fifty seven million uh -huh. uh, already were born here. Okay, yeah, that's what the the Barnett research and on. and the Hispanic population in the United States now represents what percent of the total? Do you know that? Do you have that? Of the number? total U.S. Uh, yeah, yeah, sixteen percent, sixteen percent, seventeen percent. Okay, so it's it. Um, so I I suspect it comprises now the largest minority. It is the, the largest. Yes, it is the largest minority. It was also the fastest uh, minority mm -hmm. up until fastest you know, growing. Fastest growing. Yeah, uh -huh. fastest growing. 
it has slowed slowed down a little bit uh-huh. because people are now taking more cautious. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, yeah. but still projected to be the large the, the largest minority by 2015. Okay. I mean 2000 uh, 2050. I'm sorry, 2050. Okay. Yeah. So it's still a, a really large pool of people uh-huh. with their own you know identities and attitudes and all that. Right, right, and, and of course the other reality that sits behind this is is that when you add all the minorities that are here together, the, I don't know what year it's supposed to happen, but sometime in the next couple of three decades, mm-hmm. um, uh, the United States is supposed to become uh, 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 the, uh, the Anglo presence will become a minority, yeah. uh, and and the conglomeration of others will become the majority in mm-hmm. our in our own uh, national population, um, which which shows uh, how much our country is changing and raises the issue of why this conversation is so important. Absolutely. Uh, so, Michael, since you have a responsibility here at the seminary for for thinking about this, uh, tell me how you how you view this this change that we're in the midst of. Um, well, I think that the statistics are, are certainly there, and uh, what we're trying to do with DTS and Espanol is really to try to understand what is happening in the Hispanic culture, uh, it, particularly particularly with the local church, and. Um, what is our role in terms of theological education and providing training for for the church, for congregants, for other Hispanics that might be looking for theological education? We have the first generation folks that are here, and, and for, for, for the most part for them, they speak solely Spanish uh, or prim- primarily Spanish. But then you have the second and third generation that are here, and they they're wanting to shift more towards the towards the English, um, and so we're trying to think through where where do we really invest in as a seminary to make sure that we are uh, offering the the, per, the courses, the training, the programs that most uh, Spanish speakers will need, depending on what their primary language is and what they want to do. Now, uh, I didn't. A- I don't think I asked this earlier, but uh, how many, how many, what percentage of the Hispanic population that's here is predominantly primary or or exclusively Spanish speaking? Is does anyone know what those numbers would look like? Uh, yes, I actually it's it's kind of. I wouldn't say in millions, you yeah. know. I, I wouldn't, but I, I would think that uh, you know, uh, it's it's probably uh, kind of split at mm-hmm. this point because of what I just said that mm-hmm. you know the majority of them already were born here, mm-hmm. and so they are already speaking uh, English and mm-hmm. they're speaking s- s- some Spanish. Mm-hmm. Now the ma- the others have arrived mm-hmm. and they obviously bring Spanish. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are learning English as they can. Some of them never do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is something that you know marketers, communicators really looked into very deeply mm-hmm. uh, to figure out what is the best way to you know create communication messages whether it's advertisement or you know positioning or anything so it is it is it is a it is a science and it is an art in mm-hmm. that aspect as well mm-hmm. so um, uh, I, I guess part of uh, I think the figure that I have heard now I'm I, I don't want to get into the immigration discussion with this question but um, is that the the amount of supposed uh, I don't know whether the no- I've heard the number around 11 million. I don't know whether that is 
an undocumented number or the number of immigrants per se? Um, uh, the num- the number is being thrown as the number of undocumented uh, immigrants. Okay, so so and obviously most of those people come in and they come in with yeah. with with Spanish certainly primarily. Definitely. Okay, so um, and the, but on top of that, we've got many Hispanics who who are bilingual. Okay, yeah. second and third generation, et cetera. Uh, and, and then we've got some people who've been here a while who've learned English, mm-hmm. et cetera. So that number may be high in terms of the totality of people who are Spanish only. And the reason I raise this is I was actually going to begin this broadcast by speaking what little <laughs> Spanish I know and oh. saying buenos dias to you guys and como buenas estas. Tardes. <laughs> yeah, buenas tardes, exactly. And uh, it, it's not quite buenas noches yet. <laughs> and so um, – and, and, and to, to make a linguistic point, uh, and, and that is that one of the challenges in the churches here in the United States for thinking about how you minister to this community is wrestling with the question like we have already on campus about, um, all right, do you do this in English only or do you think about if it's an out effort to reach out, do you do it, uh, do you have some Spanish-only stuff, or do you provide for translation, those kinds of questions. Now, Miguel, my question for you is, you work in a church that's trying to sort this out. How do you, how do you handle that question? It's a great question. Well, there are lots of models that can be implemented, whether it's simultaneous translation with technology, mm-hmm. uh, or sometimes there are preachers that preach in Spanish and in English just taking turns. There are many, many methodologies, and many of them seem to be effective. Hmm. I don't think the method matters uh, is the most important thing as much as how it gets implemented mm-hmm. and the support that it gets from, from the, the whole community for the church. Mm-hmm. In our particular case, we do have a Spanish-speaking service because many of the people in the community that we're trying to reach speak primarily Spanish and will not be learning English for many reasons or they prefer Spanish. Mm-hmm. So we do have a worship service in Spanish that happens at the same time as the English service. And our children and, and those who are bilingual are able to participate in any ministry of the church for the other ministries. Mm-hmm. So it works for us to have a Spanish service. We have the facilities, we have the resources to make it happen. For other people that want to communicate in a different way, a uh, translated service might work, mm-hmm. or a bilingual service. Mm-hmm. It, it's not the methodology is not not the defining element. I believe mm-hmm. it is the, the ethos of the church and how they get perceived and accepted that counts the most because it's all about relationship. Interesting. Now we got about a minute and a half, so this is a quick question for you, Michael. How do, how's the seminary handling this? Are we doing any Spanish speaking classes exclusively, or is everything that we do in English? No, right now we're doing everything in Spanish. Okay. Uh, even the literature that uh, we are requiring the students to to read and use for the courses that will all be in Spanish. The professors will be will be teaching in Spanish. Uh, the interaction between the students and between the students, the professor, that will all be in Spanish. Now our courses right now are online. Uh, we may move to some hybrid courses, and eventually may, we may even have courses on campus. But we we made the decision early on that we were going to focus on the Spanish language and use that as our primary uh, uh, language to communicate and, and, and learn in and to teach. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? 
This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Tell me what I, as an Anglo, don't get about being Hispanic or Latino. What is it, if you had a chance to say something to me about how to think about um, understanding or relating to a culture that I'm not a part of, uh, what, would you, what would you tell me? What advice would you give? And uh, Yvonne, I think I'll start with you in terms of, of answering that Yes, question. this is a question that we try to answer uh, to all our clients and mm-hmm. firm. Mm-hmm. I mean, we work with uh, large ministries, publishers. Uh, What's the name people. of your organization? It's called Kerux Group. Uh-huh. Kerux uh-huh. Group comes uh-huh. from a Greek, not yeah, Hispanic, yeah. Uh, but it means herald and right. uh, means uh, a voice. And we want to be a voice uh-huh. for all these uh, organizations, the Anglos, uh-huh. into the Hispanic community. Uh-huh. So keruxgroup.com, K-E-R-U-X group.com they can go there and find information about us but that's what we try to do to really open the eyes to uh, uh, the Anglo entities and you know how a Hispanic thinks what's the way they communicate what is the expectations also as their audience so one of the things I would say in terms of trying to understand the audience is that Hispanics are you know very visual very Mm -hmm. uh, colorful uh, very emotional Mm -hmm. and all those aspects needs to be need to be included in your communication approach Mm -hmm. you know they can really spot something that is uh, done not professionally uh, with shortcuts you know when translations are done half away we can really identify that and it goes to the heart of credibility Mm -hmm. and when we were dealing with the message the gospel it is really key that that is removed if you want to reach people really truly in an authentic way Mm -hmm. so that's what we do and that will be my advice not to try to shortcut the, the fact that somebody in your church or in your organization speaks Spanish and you know can do some translation does not mean it's going to really connect with the audience that you're after because there is an art and there is a uh, there is a science to it. Hmm. Hmm. Miguel, you know there are two things that I think mm-hmm. agreeing with Ivan also about uh, um, taking a step further. Two things that I would want you to understand as an Anglo about mm-hmm. a Hispanic person. Mm-hmm. The first one is that being a Hispanic person, as some theologians have said, is kind of living in the hyphen. Mm-hmm. It's living in transition between cultures. It's being in a journey that we haven't mm-hmm. quite arrived. And for somebody that belongs to a particular context, this journey may not make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the Israelites getting out of Egypt and going to the Promised Land. Well, it takes them 40 years, and that generation doesn't make it. Well, that journey of the four years is the becoming. Mm-hmm. It is living in that hyphen. So that's one thing. The other thing is that um, Latin Americans, Hispanics, uh, uh, Latinos are mestizo people, mm-hmm. which means they're they're a contradiction of cultures put together in unity. They're they're already a mix. Absolutely. So they're a hyphen and a hyphen. Absolutely. Yeah. But not only that, um, <laughs> the, the, the culture 
it's not one of compartmentalization where everything is neat and tight and it mm-hmm. is it is it is a flow mm-hmm. of, of relationship mm-hmm. so some of the things that don't make sense from Hispanics many times for Anglos mm-hmm. come from the fact that for instance the mañana or the viva la vida the live enjoying life right uh-huh. it's, it's not that people are lazy or don't don't have a good work ethic there are values mm-hmm. that may be driving this journey mm-hmm. and there are some things that are more important than others that mm-hmm. you don't necessarily share okay mm-hmm. I'll give you one that comes up right away Way with moment I go to Latin America, it's called tiempo, <laughs> <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> That's time, right. and the handling of time. How does how, t- talk a little bit about that? Well, it's all about relationship mm-hmm. again. Uh, being timely and getting things done is important, but not nearly as important as relationship and how you get it done. Mm-hmm. So, uh, starting and finishing. Uh, a particular appointment is all a function of the person you're meeting or the kind of things you want to get accomplished. It is more important for me to end up my meeting well with you, mm-hmm. however however long that takes, mm-hmm. than to close the deal. Mm-hmm. So it, it is a different set of values. And mm-hmm. People matter. People so matter so running aspect. long or starting late, if it if it's in a context in which relationships are being built, etc., that that's not that it's not that big a deal. It is a big a deal, but yeah. not as big as a deal as making a good impression or being respected by that people. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael, what do you have to add to this mix? I, I think I think what they've said most of it. I, I would just uh, concur with Miguel, too, in the sense that um, relationship building, you know, when I when I go into a, a, a Spanish setting or Hispanic church, uh, it's, a, it's a very different setting than, than a non-Hispanic church in the sense that People, when they ask you, how are you doing, they really are asking you, how are you doing? Yeah, and yeah. They, it's not a form of greeting. Exactly. Yeah. And they want to enter into a discussion with you. They want to learn about you. They want to learn about your family. Uh, and not just here in the U.S., but when I travel overseas and in Latin America, Cuba, other locations where there's uh, mostly Hispanics uh, in those locations, they, they will always ask me, how was your family? How are your children? And they really do mean it, and they want to spend time understanding how are how are things going for you, and uh, and that's it, it. It does force things to slow down a little bit, mm-hmm. but you need to allow enough margin. If you're going to interact with Hispanics, you need to allow enough margin to be able to enter into those dialogues with them because they really want to know. Okay, now this this transitions into a question that's going to kind of have two segments to it. One, the first is um, let's think about the, the space that you create. Uh, in your communities for Hispanics and the importance on the one hand of having them feel accepted and be assimilated versus the tension of allowing them to be Hispanics at the same time, if I can pose it that way. It may not even be the best way to pose the question, but I think you know what I'm what I'm getting at, that oftentimes in communities there's this tension between, and particularly if you're, you have oversight over a community, how much do we try and homogenize everything and make everything the same? And how much do we respect the fact that different groups, be, in part because of their differences, um, need to have some space to be who they also are, rather than to impose the the the, the majority culture on them? Help help us negotiate that question. And what I have in mind here in the backdrop is. A church that's saying, you know, we we recognize that we've got Hispanics living around us in our neighborhood. We'd like to reach out and figure out a way to do this. What are some of the do's and don'ts in that in relationship to the question that I'm asking? Uh, Michael, how would would you get started on that? I think that, first of all, I think we've covered a little bit of it already in the sense that the Hispanic culture is not not monocultural. Mm -hmm. And so as a 
pastor or someone that wants to minister to his to Hispanic to Hispanics here in the U.S. You need to be aware of who your audience really is, who these who the members are in that in that setting. They could be from various different countries uh, that would bring with them different uh, attitudes, even different 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 terminology. Sometimes, uh, you know, I've been in settings where I'll use a certain term, uh, thinking that it's perfectly a, a perfectly fine term to use, and people are laughing at me. And I'm wondering why. You know? yeah, yeah. So we need to be careful with that, and and just be able to really begin to listen to what. Where what are their needs? What are where are they wanting to go? Uh, the other aspect to keep in mind too is that um, we need to be thinking about the influence of the globalization movement, even in local settings. Uh, you have parents that are that are um, might not have as much of that influence in their lives, but they have their children and others that they're interacting with that are starting to understand that there's a there's a world even outside their immediate setting, and how is that influencing them as well? So it's it's a it's a complex issue, I think. But I think it starts with trying to understand and listen carefully. Hmm. Ivan. Yeah, I would say to somebody who is thinking about how to do a Hispanic ministry, uh, not, don't, don't be timid. Don't mm -hmm. be timid. I mean, one common denominator that I observe in a lot of organizations is that, you know, they think that, okay, we have Hispanics here, so let's try to do something in, a, you know, almost like an experimental way. And, I mean, like I said, Hispanics would spot that as a really lack of authenticity, care, mm -hmm. uh, interest. I mean, the brands, corporations understand that, and they're making uh, big investments and long-term commitments uh, because they see that, you know, in three decades, this is where, you know, the major audience is going to be of, you know, the round. So mm -hmm. I, I think uh, ministries need to be really serious about this if they're going to enter. You know, of course, there are ways to mitigate risk and not and to be good stores of, you know, the resources that Lord gives. But uh, the, it, go, it goes to the attitude, right? Mm -hmm. It goes, you got to show the same passion that you show for your youth ministry or mm -hmm. for, you know, your men's ministry to Hispanic ministry. Miguel? I think there are three things that we need to consider when, when we go into Hispanic ministries or churches, and churches are uniquely equipped to address this need. The first one has to do with uh, replacing um, assimilation by with integration. Mm -hmm. Assimilation is uh, the world's cookie-cutter mechanism to bring people into the melting pot. Mm -hmm. I think the church is better than that. The church has a chance to bring all of God's people into the full participation of God's purposes. That's integration. Mm -hmm. As we partner together to do the mission of God and dignify people in their context, we can experience unity and diversity. So integration. How do we make that happen? Incarnation. Christ offers the perfect model being God himself and becoming human to bridge the biggest possible gap of cultures, if you will, God's culture and human culture. And he becomes, he doesn't appear, he doesn't just go and do some benevolence ministry, he becomes. So incarnation, the third one has to do with mutuality. Mm -hmm. When you pile your leadership resources and welcome people and dignify them, you bring them to be equal partners. It's mm. not the church that meets at 6 p.m. It's not the second class mm -hmm. member of a church. It is a brother or sister in Christ. So we effectively create a third culture. I'm no longer Jew or Gentile. Mm -hmm. I'm a Christian. Mm -hmm. And that is a platform from, from which every ministry can grow and prosper. Now, uh, that ma makes an observation that I think uh, reflects what sometimes can be a blind spot. This is actually true of all uh, intercultural interactions, and that's almost a kind of pa a patronizing that can take place 
that uh, that even in some cases might not even be intended, mm-hmm. but exists. So I want you to talk a little bit about that. What 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 can come across as patronizing? Even though it might be well intended, that actually ends up um, in some cases doing more harm or creating more distance than good. Well, there's a lot of that. Well, mm-hmm. for instance, paternalism in mm-hmm. churches. Mm-hmm. When uh, well intended churches want to plant a Hispanic church and they want to pile all the resources and dictate how every ministry should be led, and they always want to control every single aspect of the new church plan because obviously they don't know any better. Mm-hmm. It might be well intended for the church to grow and bring best practices, but mm-hmm. they don't. They don't give an equal partnership level to those who they are trying to help. Or just uh, some well-intended questions, as you said, when people sometimes ask me. So, uh, you're you're well, you're Hispanic. That means you're not white, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> when we make racial categories and we understand, we don't understand that Hispanic is not a racial right. term; it's a cultural one. So right. things like that sometimes um, create tensions that are unnecessary. Hmm. Uh, Michael, do you have anything to add to that mix in, in terms of yeah. what can be brought forward? Sure. I mean, I think when it when I'm, I'm when I'm thinking about theological education, because that's where where my uh, where I'm mostly involved with right now in terms of the Hispanic culture, um, it, it's it's really being able to understand uh, and enter into a dialogue with them about what is it that you really need. What are some of the areas that you need training in? What are some of the needs areas that you need, you want to improve upon in terms of your understanding of theology and Bible, and try to address those those needs as opposed to going into that culture or that setting and, and suppose and presuming that you have the answers that they are they are looking for and you might have the answers to the wrong questions so you know I think that that's something to be keep, keeping mind as, as well we we often want to approach uh, and, and be cross-cultural and enter into the into different uh, settings different worlds but sometimes we, we we are eager to do so but we're not listening very carefully. Okay, I want to follow up on this by kind of asking you a question. Uh, might be a, a difficult question, and that is, are there areas of life or engagement or segments of theology that fit into Hispanic culture more normally or naturally that tend not to be addressed if it's uh, a European or an Anglo-American who's addressing the theological topic? I mean, are there are there certain things where where um, the Latino and Hispanic community have given attention to or have thought about uh, certain issues in ways that everyone can learn or everyone can learn from? I mean, that's a that's a really bad way to ask the question, but you get what I'm getting at. You are you asking me? Or? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think one of the areas that that stands out to me is is the um, concern with uh, society, uh, poverty, um, the uh, oppression, violence. Uh, those are issues that are that come up uh, often in the Hispanic setting, not just here in the U.S., but certainly in Latin America as well. And you know, keep in mind that when when we have Hispanics migrating into our country, that's their background. That's what they bring with them. And so that's going to influence the way they see they that influence the way they see the world, and so in that setting, oftentimes they will uh, have a have a theological perspective that might address those topics more than we would here in the U.S. 
And are there writings in this regard? And, and I, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes when I have these conversations, particularly with international students, they say, you aren't asking me to read anything that's written from the world I come out of. <laughs> you know, it, that's kind of the way it, it's said. And, and they're right. Okay, uh, it's not my world. I don't you know. In some cases, I'm not even acquainted with the literature, that kind of thing. So, are, are there things that that fit into that kind of a category that uh, that are um, that are a value uh, to to consider and 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 even names of of certain writers that might be of help to us? I mean, there are some. Most of them are are would of course come from Latin America. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some folks like Samuel Escobar. Um, uh, there's another guy down in Argentina named Norberto Seraco, mm-hmm. um, who have written on some of these topics. I know in some of my classes right now, I'm I'm trying to introduce some of these uh, Latin American uh, theologians and authors so that our students here, even at DTS, can begin to be exposed to a broader scope of uh, writers and thinkers when it comes to theology, especially when we're talking about cross-cultural issues. Mm-hmm. Yvonne, I can actually add a little bit yeah, of that. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I can say René Padilla yeah, and sure. uh, Arnold, sure. uh, Arnold Segura. Mm-hmm. And in fact, right now, uh, they're actually debating among themselves from the old generation of more of the uh, integral mission, that's what they, they would call it, Misión Integral, mm-hmm. uh, to more of a revisitation because of current events that have occurred with, you know, the reason the church in Colombia rejecting the deal with uh, the, the FARC, uh, mm-hmm. as FARC, and uh, the, you peace know, the peace agreement, peace agreement, right, and so sure. and many other things where, you know, the church uh, opposing abortion and, and many other things that where the church seems to be very socially involved, but really not having that theological foundation or the theological understanding of you know why they need to be doing those things. I mean, they are they are poli- they have reached levels of you know political influence and, and so on, uh, but you know cultural in general is not being affected as they were hoping you know 20 years ago when the Mission Integral idea was started. So there is a whole d- dialogue and that aspect happening right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. There's another layer, layer of theological reflection that might be worth considering, uh, okay. and not just from the Latin America authors, and, and uh, but also from the Hispanic authors in the United States and that second, third generation mm-hmm. of new theologians that's coming. Mm-hmm. Garcia Johnson in Princeton has some really good stuff, mm-hmm. and and also. Um, interdenominational traditional dialogue with the Catholic Church because they have done extensive theological reflection on Latin America mm-hmm. that Protestants would do well in considering just what they're coming from and their vantage points. So. Interesting. Um, well, uh, the, uh, I think it's, uh, like I say, it's a whole area, generally speaking, that doesn't uh, come up and doesn't get addressed very often. And certainly, I would say that the average Anglo, not just student, but even the average Anglo professor is not even aware of some of these conversations. and. And uh, if you're going, if you're going into the space, you got to go into the space. I mean, it's just, it's just uh, that simple. Let me, let me, let me. We're, we're run, rapidly running out of time here, so let me, let me uh, ask one more key question, and it goes like this: 
What are, and you've alluded to some of this, but I'm going to give you time to develop it. What are some of the mistakes that are often made in reaching out to Hispanics and Latinos uh, that should be uh, avoided, even avoided like the plague? So um, uh, what, what, what do you think goes into, in, into that? And then, and then what are some things that you think that are done, that are done well, that, that seem, to, seem to actually build the bridges that people are seeking? seeking to build. And Ivan, I'll let you start since you Well, I'm going to speak from my you know, yeah, experience. Right. And so what I would say is, you know, oftentimes organizations, you know, are cautious of the opportunity, you know, but immediately they think, well, how much is this going to cost me? You mm-hmm. know? And uh, they assume that the cause will have to be absorbed by Anglo dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in fact, what we're showing through our agency is that the Latino population is now at a point where they can actually contribute, mm-hmm. you know, in a good way and actually in a way that could make that initiative self-sustaining. And that's what we do through strategy, messaging, and uh, campaign activations and so on. But uh, that is then something that I think needs to be eliminated from mm. the mindset, change the paradigm. There is an untap opportunity there uh, for good reasons, because Hispanics are enthusiastic about supporting uh, causes, specifically religions, because it matters to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that needs to be uh, a consideration. What is done well? I think uh, right now, slowly, the ministries are becoming more aware of you know the opportunity and they're more open to the conversation uh they're bringing people with experience you know to the table either in a church or through an agency or an education institution so that's a good thing and i continue to encourage uh, all of us as our job really to be the evangelists right to uh, uh, make the case for the for hispanics miguel I think some things to be to definitely avoid, like the play uh, ethnocentrism, whether mm-hmm. on the Anglo or the Hispanic side. There are mm-hmm. Hispanics that only want to be the Mexican church or the mm. Spanish-speaking church. That is absolutely untenable for the church. The church is the body of Christ, and mm-hmm. ethnicity is welcome. So, ethnocentrism. I mentioned paternalism earlier, mm-hmm. um, and also um, just good intentions without counting the cost. A lot mm-hmm. of churches want to start a Hispanic ministry just to find out they don't have what it takes to plant a church, let alone a Hispanic church. Mm-hmm. So they need to count the cost, they need to do their homework, find out the best models they can get a hold on, and then start once they have counted the, count the cost. Michael? Uh, again, uh, just not to presume too much about the Hispanic culture and really be willing to in- enter into it with an open open eyes, open ears, and willing to dialogue about what they really are, where they are at, what their needs might be, and how you might be able to serve them if you want to serve them. Uh, and not presume, as even Miguel just alluded to, and I've mentioned it as well, that, that we are not monocultural. We're very diverse, and we need to be sensitive to that and be aware of that. I think what we are what we're doing well, and I'm thinking again about the theological education setting right now, is that there are organizations and there are um, uh, opportunities that we are moving forward with concerning how do we um, engage the Hispanic culture. Um, I was just in Princeton for a conference uh, there that had to do with uh, biblical institutes and other seminaries that have Spanish programs, and really critically be beginning to think through how what is it that we can do to to advance uh, education and training and formation in the Hispanic culture in the Hispanic church. So there are some really positive things that are happening in that regard, and it's really an exciting time to be involved in Hispanic ministries. Well, I want to thank you all for coming in and talking about this. You know, I, I think that one of the interesting things, and it's it's true of anyone who's who 
moves into a cross-cultural space is that is to understand that the difference isn't necessarily a right or wrong category. It's mm-hmm. just different. And mm-hmm. and becoming acquainted with it, becoming familiar with it, understanding that, that different people live their lives by different rules, and sometimes those rules are more a matter of choice and preference than they are a matter of right and wrong, uh, actually helps you to develop an attitude that, that, that is willing to learn from another culture, that is willing to engage with another culture, that uh, doesn't, you know, kind of keep them at a distance because of those differences, that kind of thing. And so I thank you for taking the time with us to help us uh, think through what some of those differences are and how it works and, and how it can work for the church because ultimately, as we have all said, the church is transnational. It is a body of Christ made up of many, many nations and many, many people. And we thank you for helping us understand that. And we thank you for being a part of the table where we discuss issues of God and culture, and we hope you'll be back again with us soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits Podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.